verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the word. Thank you so much for your word. I, uh, I pray, God, that you would use your word this morning to uh, regenerate the hearts of those that are uh, underneath the word this morning that don't know you, and that they would come to know you that they would be believers in Christ, uh, confess their sin, repent of their sin, put their faith in you. Um, And those that are believers, those that have trusted in Christ, I pray that they would see and understand that they need to hear the message of the gospel again and that they would be um, just absolutely enamored for what Christ has done for them. So use this text for your glory this morning. I pray that as all of us um, come to the good news of the gospel each week and as we Uh, Think deeply about what it means to be your children, Lord, that you would uh, cause us to fall in love with Christ more and that we would constantly remember that our righteousness is in Christ, not in anything that we've done. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So um, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Verse 17. So... Uh, As I said, last week we started at verse 18, or we finished off at verse 17, and now we're in verse 18. And so as we do that, um, if you look at verse 18, just want to make sure, so you know why I'm going back to 17 today, why I'm doing it last week and this week. If you look at chapter uh, 5, verse 18, it says, all this, all this. And so when you get to, if you start, if we're really going to start at verse 18, and it starts with all this, then really we need to know what all this is, right? It's literally all these things, meaning all the things that we've been discussing, really from 11 to 17, um, on what it means to be a Christian. Uh, And so if we're going to look at verse 18, it says, all this is from God. We need to know what the all this is. So that's why we're going back to 17, uh, at least just 17. We could go through 11 through 17, but I did that last week and it took me a whole hour. So I'm just going to go to 17 and get the the gist of all this so we can go into 18, know what we're we're talking about. Now remember, um, if you look at verse 17, when we looked at it last week, verse 17 is just four little short clauses. There's lots of extra words that are put into it for us uh, in English. But in verse 17, all it is, is this. Literally in the Greek, verse 17, in Christ, new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. That's just what what he says. So we've supplied a lot of extra stuff. Therefore, if anyone is, so all that's extra, it's just in Christ, new creation. Um, he is a new creation, the he is a, all that's, all that's just supplied in English for us. It's just in Christ, new creation, old is gone, the new has come. And so um, if we're looking at it in proper context, it means in Christ, the one that belongs to Christ, the sphere of power has now been uh, united, to, uh, of this man has been united to Christ, it's part of his body, and if he's in Christ, he's now a new creation. He is um, a new man. He has been given the new heart. 
when we consider this deep gospel truth that we are now a new creation, it means when sin comes to tempt you, you can preach this message to yourself. I'm a new creation. I don't have to give in to this anymore, this sin like I used to. I'm a new creation in Christ. I have a new heart. I have new desires. I have new things going on in my life. There should be new desires to want to please Christ, to want to be with Christ, to want to do what he wants. And so in Christ, I am now a new creation. You should um, constantly preach that to yourself. You're no longer the old man. You're no longer who you were anymore you are now totally a new creation. Now, it's not just some kind of new creation that's on its own. It's a new creation in Christ. So you have new desires that are Christ-like. It's not, I had old desires, now I have new desires, and they're both bad. No, no. I had old desires, and now this new person is totally in Christ. And everything now, as a new creation in Christ, wants to do what Jesus wants. So, in Christ, new creation. And then that's when it says... The old is gone. Consider that. The past of who you were is dead. As a dead man, uh, as dead as Christ was on the cross, that's who we are now. That old man is dead. All the ideas, all the former hopes, all the wretched sinful ambitions, all those are dead. That man now lives in a complete other universe. We don't even know who that is anymore. Depending on your age, you can uh, relate to that. Like if I, you got saved really young, you're like, I, can, I don't even know what it's like to be an old man, as a, a dead man. Um, but now the old is gone and now the new has come. We are uh, reconciled into this new relationship with God. This is the most important part of being a new, new creation. Reconciled into this new relationship with God. The new has come. We're a new man. We're a new creation, new desires, new loves, new inclinations, new truths to know, new truths to seek. So based on this even greater, the best thing, as I said, we now have a new relationship with God. So based on this amazing verse of 17 and really everything that's coming up, now that's how we understand verses 18 through 21. God has done an amazing work in us, namely that we're now new creations in Christ. We've been reconciled to God. And um, what God has done has been explained to us in verse 17. And he builds all of, all, the, off all of that in verse 17 to tell us this is what it looks like now to really two things. Um, be a part of the ministry of reconciliation and to believe the message of reconciliation. So those, that's what we're looking at today. You can go ahead and, oh, the message of reconciliation. Perfect. So we're, we're going to look at this message of reconciliation. Now, I said last week um, that verses 11 through 17 had a Christocentric focus, that namely it's on what Christ has done. What Paul is going to do is kind of take a little bit of a step back in 18 through 21 and just do a theo, theos is the Greek word for God, theocentric focus. So it's just on all of what God is doing. So he's going to say, all this is from God. So when he's saying God, he means the Trinity, the, the, the three persons of God in one. This is what he is doing. So this is a theocentric focus on reconciliation, meaning um, this text uh, is, is super clear on what's going on. What's going on is that he's telling us about the message of reconciliation. One commentator says it this way, um, that the message of reconciliation basically has been given to us as Christians to proclaim to other people. That's what the test text is. Today's church, uh, and that, that, that's usually defined as the mission of the church. It, it can get confused, but here in this text, it just brass taxes it for us right down to the nitty gritty. We, we can see without any confusion what's the mission of the church. This commentator writes, today's church is confronted by a seemingly endless uh, variety of ministry methods, strategies, and styles. Some argue that the church 
The church's mission should be to agitate for social and political change, to force cultural morality. And some can say, no, the mission of the church is to usher in the new kingdom. Others insist the church's message should not be in, should not be should be inoffensive, upbeat, affirming, and create a positive atmosphere so non-believers can feel welcome and not threatened. All those things are uh, moralism or postmillennialism, pragmatism. Still, others believe the church's primary task is just to defend theological distinctives, denominationalism. All those things are okay, but they're not. They're not the the nitty-gritty brass tacks final thing of what the church's mission is. There should be no confusion in Scripture what the church's actual mission is to be: evangelism. The definitive passage. This definitive passage clearly articulates the heart and souls of the church's responsibility as its representatives of Jesus Christ to the world. So this is our task, evangelism, or Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Um, Kevin DeYoung writes in his book, it's called aptly, What is the Mission of the Church? And I, I would suggest everyone get that book. What is the Mission of the Church by Kevin DeYoung? It's, it's just straightforward, tells us, without any confusion of what it is we're supposed to do. What is the Mission of the Church? Kevin DeYoung, Greg Gilbert, this is what he writes. It's, it's like on page 62. No clue why they do this in some of these books, where they, they get 60 pages in, where they finally define what the, the answer is. But he does it on page 62 and 241. Uh, what is the message of the church? Here it is. Or what is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples and in eternity churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. That's what it is. That's what it is that we're supposed to do. The mission, the mission of the church is that we proclaim the gospel. This is the chief task given to the church, the, the carrying out of the Great Commission, the doing of the work of the evangelism. Think about this. Who else besides the church is going to do that? No one. No one. No one is going to take up the Great Commission. There's lots of other things that get, get, that get pulled into the mission of the church and lots of other parachurch organizations and people in the world will carry out those tasks. Fine. That's great. We love that. Fine. Do those things. But no one else is going to do the primary chief task of the church, which is the Great Commission. There's not a governmental agency that wants to do that for us. There's not um, a parachurch organization. It's been given primarily to be the work of the church. Therefore, the church should not give this task away to other people. The church should not be lazy in this task. The church should not try to change the task of evangelism to something else and make that something else what our Matthew chapter 28, go make disciples. So in this text, the great work of proclaiming the gospel or the ministry of reconciliation, as it's named in this particular text, is unpacked and explained to us what it is. Now, the gospel. This is what we mean when we say the gospel. Euangelion is the Greek word, and it just means good news. That's all it means. You hear gospel a lot. It literally just means good news. Now, to understand good news, you've got to understand bad news. There is no... Um, good news without bad news. Talking about the gospel itself, John MacArthur says, the glorious good news of the gospel is that the sin-devastated relationship between lost sinners and the holy God can be restored. It can be restored. That, that at first glance, what seems impossible, God's perfect, infinite, righteous justice demands punishment of all who violate his law. 
standing before the bar of his justice are helpless, guilty sinners, unable to satisfy God or to change their condition. But through God's plan of reconciliation, all the hostility, all the animosity, all the alienation separating the Holy One God and sinners vanishes. And all those who were once enemies become his friends. And the high calling and noble, noble privilege of preaching this message of reconciliation is the most important duty in the world since it deals with eternal destinations. That is what we are called to when we're called to be parts of this ministry or the message of reconciliation. So in this particular section that we're looking at, this is probably the most highly packed theological section of the letter. Paul is giving a comprehensive statement on what the message of reconciliation is. And so we're going to look at just, there's only three today, which is pretty amazing. I'll probably still preach for an hour, but all, there's only three points instead of six or ten. But here's, it's really simple. Three things, three truths on the message of reconciliation. Truth number one, verse 18. You can go ahead and put it up. Our reconciliation is exclusively God's work. Our reconciliation is exclusively God's work. Look what it says. Verse 18, first First uh, four, five words. Uh, really, it's supposed to be six. All these things, and we just says all this. All these things, namely the gospel, all of the, this when it comes to the gospel is from God. All of this is from God. Sinners cannot be reconciled to God on their own terms. As much as we desire to make this happen, as much as we want to preach this kind of soft gospel or get to God on your own terms, this is not how salvation happens. Unregenerate people have no ability to appease God's holy, righteous anger against sin. Nor can they satisfy his holy justice or his holy, righteous justice to conform to his perfect standard of righteousness. So we can't do anything to make it right. All of us are guilty of fatally violating God's law and faces eternal judgment. But here's the good news. God alone designed the way of reconciliation and he alone can initiate reconciliation of a sinner unto himself. Unto himself. Look at verse 18 when it says, all this is from God. Here it is. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself. This text highlights that this is exclusively God's work. It is exclusively God's work. All this is from God, who through Christ, this is still a work of God. God did it through Christ to reconcile us. Nothing we can do. God wants to save us. And so what does he do? He takes all the initiative work and all of it is exclusively his work, sends his son to die on the cross and therefore reconciles us back to himself. We are the gracious recipients of all of this uh, initiative work. It's exclusively God's work. Is there another place? Are there other? Is this just, am I reading this in? Well, I would say there are multiple places we could go in the scriptures to show this, but I'll, I'll give you one. I'll give you one. Maybe one of the most convincing ones. Ephesians chapter 1. This is how Ephesians chapter 1 says um, that the work of salvation is exclusively God's work. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And here it is. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Think about what he's saying there. Pre-creation, pre-Genesis 1-1, God has chosen who would be in him. Pre-Genesis 1-1, 
even before, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be us for adoption, endless before self, as in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to why? Why would he do this? What's the, what's the thing that's making this happen? According to the purpose of his will. Why would he do this? According to his will. And then what more? To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, because it is what brings him glory. So all the initiative has been taken by God. Salvation that we have received, our reconciliation, is exclusively God's work. And when has he done it? When has he decided? Pre-Genesis 1-1, because he was alive then from eternity past. It's not like he started at Genesis 1-1. Poof, I'm here with you. Let me start making stuff. That's not how it works, right? God is eternally always been here, not just in the future, but in the past. Think on that for a while and it'll mess your head up because we're finite. We can't, finite people can't comprehend the infinite. We just can't. He's always been here. So before he even started creating, before the world was created or time was created, he existed forever. He's outside of time, outside of creation. And then he thought from eternity past, I know what I'm going to do whenever that was um, because he's always had this thought. Uh, and the, the order salutis, if you want to call it, this is the order of how things happen in salvation. I know what I'm going to do. I know who I'm going to save. And I'm going to choose them to be in Christ right now before creation even happens. That's amazing. That's just un- unbelievable. Which means when we look at this, our reconciliation is exclusively God's work. Now, you still believe. Whenever you trust in Christ, you still did it, Right? You're not a robot. You're not an automaton. Like the day that you believed, you saw that Christ was, was, was real, that he died on the cross, you really did it. But you could just ask the question, whence did that faith come? From where did that faith come? It was a gift. The Lord gave you the gift of faith and boom. So even the faith that you do, you really do, is still the gift. Therefore, all God's work. All God's work. Reconciliation. This is in verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled, katalasso, reconciled. What does this mean? This term portrays God as the reconciler, and sins are the, sinners are the ones being reconciled. He's it's, it's pulling us into himself. Thus reconciliation is not something, this is what John MacArthur says, thus reconciliation is not something that man does, but instead what he receives. It's not what he accomplishes It's what he embraces. Reconciliation does not happen when the man decides to stop rejecting God. Holy displeasure against alienated sinners is now appeased. His hostility is now removed. And a harmonious relationship between them is established. And all that's because of Christ on the cross. All that. And so he tells us when he says, All this who through Christ. This term in essence means at Christ's expense. That's why... When we sing, we sing to Jesus. That's when we sing, we sing about Jesus. That's why all of our worship is about Jesus. That's why when you look at John chapter 16, the Holy Spirit's work is to point you to Jesus. All of us, all of our mind, all of our thoughts are exclusively going straight to that second person of the Trinity, Jesus, because God wants us to give all the glory, all the worship, all the honor to Jesus because it's through Christ that all this happens. Through Christ. So reconciliation has taken place for us. And so when we talk about reconciliation, I want to make sure we think about it as, as, as broadly and as rightly and as biblically as we possibly can. So uh, when we talk about reconciliation, which being 
all exclusively God's work, um, it's to be understood, I think, in really kind of two meaningful ways, one kind of big and one, and one narrow. This is what I mean. Um, there's kind of, I, I name these myself, I don't know if they're, you know, theological terms, but this is the way I think about reconciliation. First, there's, there's historical reconciliation, meaning that God did something in history. God did something in history. He sent his son to die on the cross. This, this reconciliation happened 2,000 years ago whenever God moved into human histories by sending his son. He initiated the cross to happen. This is kind of the, the reconciliation that happened in history 2,000 years ago. That's the first way. But also, that's the more broad sense, there's, the, there's individual reconciliation, which is um, God initiated your salvation. So God reconciled the world whenever he died on the cross. But we also need to think about it not just in a historical context that Jesus died on the cross and that's when reconciliation happened. But also God calls you to be his child. There's at some point where you were reconciled to God. There's a time where God with you initiated your salvation. And so when that happened, from that moment until whenever we go to be in glory, what are we supposed to do? Like, what's our proper response to the fact that God reconciled us? Well, Romans 5, 11 tells us when he says, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So our proper response towards this God-initiated reconciliation that's been given to us, your proper response is constant rejoicing. You should rejoice. You should be filled with utter joy. Well, I don't feel like that all the time. Ask God for it. Do it anyway. Choose to rejoice. Romans 5.11 could not be any more clear. Whenever we know that we've been reconciled and we live in that and we constantly um, are reminding ourselves that and preaching that good news to us that God initiated everything and he totally did not have to and he was totally righteous by not doing it and letting me get what I desired, namely to never know him. We, we desired to never know him and to do whatever we wanted. That's what we chose and he could have just said, that's what you want. That's what you want us um, in a right relationship with him. All on his initiative by sending Christ and then regenerating our hearts, the right thing that we should do when we've been saved from our own selves is just to rejoice. Wow, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe that you did that. So it's God's work, and not only has he reconciled us to himself, here's where it gets amazing, right? He's going to say this in two separate little ways, 18b and 19b, and we're going to see that. Um, whenever he has saved us, we're to rejoice. But then he, he didn't just stop there. He didn't say, and now you're mine chill. That's not what he does, right? Instead, he brings us in, and now he's like, guess what? You get to be a part of this. You get to be a part of this. And so that's what the second half of 18 and the second half of 19, he says it in two different ways, but he says the same thing. I'll show it to you. Look, verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and here it is, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You get to be a part. Look at verse 19. He says it a different way. 19b. Entrusting us, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. It's the same thing. 
He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So 18 and 19 are both framed the same way. You've been saved. And look what you've been given. You've been given the opportunity to come be a part of what's happened to you. That's 18 and 19 are saying the same thing. So 18, but they're 18 and 19 are highlighting two kind of aspects of reconciliation. One, 18 highlights that it's exclusively God's work and now come be a part. Now come be a part of this. And so God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. This is truth is just amazing. This, this is equal to the same thing, ministry of reconciliation, as the Great Commission. They are synonymous terms. The ministry of reconciliation then, therefore, demands that we proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the world. He's given it to us. And, you know, it's not like we can say, oh, thanks, you know, maybe I'll use it one day. That's not how, when God gives you something, that it, that it works out. You're not like, well, that sounds cool. And, you know, hopefully one day I'm going to take that up. That's not how it works, right? Whenever he gives us this opportunity to be a part of the ministry of reconciliation, it's a demand that we therefore do it. So let's be sure what, we, what we're saying and what we're not saying when we talk about him giving us the ministry of reconciliation. By giving us the ministry of reconciliation, it does not mean that God is no longer active in reconciling people. It's not like, here it is, I'm hands off, man. I'm really hoping you're gonna do this because I am just like hands tied here and it's all on you. That's not it at all, right? God is still totally active in reconciling people to himself. So he's letting us be a part and he's also still actively the exclusive work in every person. But we still, this is the way he's normatively set it up. We say something to somebody, God uses that, and he saves them. We say something, the gospel to somebody, and 2 Corinthians 4, 6 happens. Let light shine out of darkness. He comes behind our words with power, with the Spirit. He saves them, and then they're pulled into the ministry of reconciliation, or pulled into being saved. As, as, as verse 20 literally says, we say something and it's literally God making his appeal through us. That's unbelievable. God, every time you tell somebody the gospel, you are literally having God make his appeal through you. It's God calling out to them to be saved. You think I'm crazy? That's exactly what, we're going to get to it. It's exactly what the word ambassador means. Anyway, I'm, I want to preach ahead. God making his appeal through us so that we have been given this minute of reconciliation. We didn't take it away from God. He still is active. That's what we're talking about when we say this. Uh, also, when we think about what it means to be a part of this ministry of reconciliation, we should be constantly counting it as a blessing that we get to be a part of what God is doing to call sinners to himself. Um, he can save people any way he wants to. And the way that he's decided is that in his grace, he lets us be a part of calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus. That's the whole point that Paul makes. You can just write this down, Romans 10, 14 through 17. Just go read that later. You probably read it a thousand times. That's the whole point Paul is making in Romans 10, 14 through 17. That we get this unbelievable opportunity to be used by God to go and call people to repentance and faith. So application of number one is this. Rejoice that you've been saved, but also just be an utter absolute all that God would choose us to be a part of the ministry of reconciliation. That's the first little aspect of, of reconciliation, that it's totally God's work. Number two, our reconciliation is by the act of forgiveness. All this is from God is what it says in verse 18. Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, and here it is, not counting their trespasses 
against them. Not counting their trespasses against them. So the second part of reconciliation, when we talk about not counting our trespasses against us, is our reconciliations by the act of forgiveness. Now, 19 set up very similar to 18. Here's a gospel truth, so go be a part of it. Here's another gospel truth, so go be a part of it. 19 structured the same way as 18, but it's a second, it's, it's a different kind of truth, which is namely that he's not counting our trespasses against us. So verse 19 says, that is, uh, also could just be the word namely. So Paul's introducing how God is reconciling the world to himself through Christ. And it's, as it says in 19, in Christ, just like in verse 18 when he says it's through Christ, verse 19 he says it's in Christ and he's telling us that Jesus is of course the key agent in reconciling us to himself. And he said God was reconciling the world. So look at verse 19 with me. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world. Now, um, you can have some major theological problems if you take this without being in the context of the 2 Corinthians or the entire Bible, right? When you hear God is reconciling the world, this must not be understood as the false doctrine of universalism. God reconciling the world, you could say, well, the world, everybody's in the world, so God's just reconciling the whole world. Everybody gets saved. No, that's not how it works. Um, If you just read the whole Bible in context and not just grab one verse out, then we see that's not what's happening. Not everyone is saved. This contradicts the whole message of Scripture. So universalism is not true. And we obviously know that not all are saved because there's people that obstinately reject God their entire life. I hate him. I don't want nothing to do with him. We pray for their souls. We pray that the Lord would change their hearts. So in what sense is God reconciling the world, because it's still there, like that, it's still a verse, right? What does that mean then? It's there. In what sense is God reconciling the world, that God is moving and working to save this world? Biblically, when we read this, what is it that we think that God's trying to say when God is reconciling the world? I think that the best way to understand this is that God is reconciling um, every ethnos, every Ethnos, and and the Greek word ethnos just means like every ethnicity or every person uh, in the world, every nationality, every ethnicity. So like when Revelation 5, 9 says, and they sang, this is is at the very end, when we're all in heaven, when we're there, like what's what's it going to be like? Revelation 5, 9, really all Revelation 4 and 5 tells you, but I'm just pulling out one verse for you to get the gist of what's going on. Not out of context, but anyway. Um, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, so we're all singing to Jesus, to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, here it is, you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And we would say, God reconciled the world then. Everybody. From every tribe. This is what, when we say God reconciling the world, I think is the best way to understand the scriptures when he says God is reconciling the world. That is every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Not everyone from there, but people from every one of them. There will be uh, trophies of God's grace from every people group in heaven. They'll all have representation there. As Charles Spurgeon says, you or you and your God will never come together. And so we have to have our sins forgiven. We have to have our trespasses not be counted against us. So when we see our, our 
Tresp- when he says not counting your trespasses against them, this clause is revealing to us that it's only by the forgiveness of sins. Only having uh, the guilt of sin forgiven can sinners, which is us, be reconciled to God since it's sin that separates from us. So what does it mean? What does it mean for us to not have our trespasses counted against us? That's a pretty, it's a pretty in-depth question when we say, what does it mean for God not to count our trespasses against us. Let me, uh, you, you may have heard this before. I want to make sure that we have this because this is super important. God forgiving man is not the same as man forgiving man. It's not the same. God forgiving man is not the same as man forgiving man. Man forgives man and we're both sinners and so our forgiveness looks different because we are both unholy than God forgiving man who's holy. It has to be different. God, who is holy, can't, if you sin against me or if I sin against you, um, you can just say, don't worry about it. I, I'm not going to, not going to hold it against you. I choose to forgive. Now, God can choose to forgive, but he can't just say, don't worry about it. We can do that with each other. Don't worry about it. But if God just says, don't worry about it, he's not holy anymore. Because he's God and he's set up the law, if someone breaks the law, he can't just say, well, here's the law and here's the consequence, but I'll just say no consequence for you just because I feel like it. He's not God anymore. God is always just. And if he just says, don't worry about it, he's not just anymore. And you know what that means? He's not God anymore. So in order to be God, his forgiveness is not the same as us. We're not worried about our just, if, if you sin against me or I sin against you and you go, don't worry about it. In our, in our world, we're okay with that justice not being perfect because we're not perfect. But God is different. So God does not forgive exactly the way we do, we do. He has to demand a payment. Now, he does supply forgiveness, but instead of giving you the punishment, he takes all that punishment and puts it on Jesus. And he says, now the, a payment has been made, and so I can forgive you. So he has to make a payment. And what he's done is, because he's wholly unlike us, demanded this payment to forgive sin, and he put it on Christ. One commentator says, Christ died in the place of believers, paying the penalty for their sin and bearing its guilt. Their sin is no longer charged to their account, and it never will be again. All debts have been fully paid by Christ's righteousness imputed to their account. So in the gospel, God chooses not to count our trespasses against us when we repent of our sin, when we ask for forgiveness. God counts our sin as now put on Jesus when he died on the cross, and therefore we are forgiven. God actually does forgive us the way we forgive, but he, because he's put his payment on his son Christ, and now we're reconciled to God. We're actually put back into a right relationship with God. When I say put back, I mean um, not you individually, but man as a whole, because we were in a right relationship with God before the fall. Adam was in a right relationship with God, and then he fell, and then everybody that lives in the line of Adam willingly chooses to be a rebel, willingly chooses to sin and do whatever he wants. But whenever they're reconciled, they're put back into the relationship that they had, like Adam had. Not, not perfectly, but one day it will be. I was having a conversation with a guy this past week about this. This is not in my notes, so just think with me here. This is fun. Um, which is better? Which is better? The relationship that Adam had with God, perfect, 
just perfect, or the relationship that we will have with God in heaven. Perfect. They're both similar, right? He enjoyed perfect relationship with God. We'll enjoy perfect relationship with God. He had no sin that kept him from it. We'll have no sin that kept him from it. So they're very similar, but there's a key difference, right? One, pre-fall, had never been reconciled. We have been. I think that means that's better because we actually know what it's like to be reconciled. And the reason why all that happens is because God somehow gets more glory that way than just leaving it that way. He could have just left it this way, but he chose not to. He chose to let temptation come in through Satan, to tempt us, to have man fall, and then he reconciles us. So which is better? Reconciled man who's in the similar relationship with Adam, not sinning, um, perfect relationship with God, enjoying his, his presence forever. That's better. So um, the way that happens is that our sins aren't counted against you anymore. So our reconciliation is by the act of forgiveness, and it's even better. It's even better than pre-fall. So now, how are we supposed to think about ourselves? Being that's the case, like, if you're in Christ, you literally don't have your sins counted against you anymore. Consider that for a minute. The weight that you and I deserve for sin is absolute destruction and death forever. Like, we should receive eternal conscious torment forever. And all that's removed. What's the right relationship or what's the right response that we should have towards that? Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. This is the way that you should think because of that truth. Romans chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Now, he's just quoting David. So this is an eternal truth, right? This is not just Paul. This is David said it thousand something years before that. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is how you and I are to think of ourselves whenever we have, as it says, the act of forgiveness given to us. We don't have our sins counted against us. We are to think of ourselves as blessed. How you doing? Fine. Don't say fine no more. Blessed. I'm blessed. I'm beyond blessed. No more fine. How you doing? Blessed. Now you can ask how my day's going, and it's been up and down, but how am I doing? I'm blessed. I mean, blessed beyond measure. My sins aren't held against me. Now people might think you're weird if you answer that, and they're a stranger especially. Um, you're like, how you doing? Blessed, man, let me tell you. Like, they might think you're a little strange, but you never know. That, that could be the let light shine out of darkness moment, and God saves them. Like, that's our work, the mission of the church. Who else is going to do it? Evangelism is our work. So tell them, I'm blessed. And so just like verse 18, now we have verse 19. Now we set up the truth and he says, here's the ministry of reconciliation. We set up the truth. All your sins are forgiven. I'm entrusting you with the message of reconciliation. Please go tell people that is what he's saying. Look at verse 19. There, uh, uh, verse 19. In Christ, God's reconciled the message of reconciliation. Now what? We have been given this, this entrusting is the Greek word uh, tethemi, which means like committing or literally placed or literally, literally sit, setting on us. God is entrusting, committing, placing, setting on us the responsibility slash privilege of preaching the message of reconciliation. We are preaching, as he says, it's interesting here, he says the message of reconciliation in our word, but this is actually the Greek word logos. This is 
This is the word word. This is the word word, John 1.1. 1, 1. He is giving you the word of reconciliation. Now, you might not be like totally brought up and, and caught up on the depth of the word word, right? The logos. Let me, let me read to you uh, like the deep, deep meaning of this word logos. You can just, if you want to do a study on it, just go to John 1.1 1, 1, uh, through 18. Uh, whenever Jesus himself calls himself the word. Jesus says, I am the logos. You can just look at that, but let me read this to you. In Greek thought, logos indicates what's true and trustworthy as opposed to a myth, mythos. Sample declared that a descriptive word of fictitious and spurious. This is Philip Hughes, by the way. Uh, Socrates, for example, declared that a particular story is no fictitious myth, but a true logos. So it's not a mythos, it's a logos. It means it's, it's not just true, it's like, True. It's got all this depth to it. And so hence the, word, hence the term logos carried with it like a, like a kind of overtone, an implication of truth and genuine according to its peculiarity uh, appropriate as a synonym for the gospel, the word of truth. So we've been given the, the logos, what's the, the absolute truth of reconciliation. And so scripture therefore describes the message of reconciliation or the logos of reconciliation as the word of the kingdom, the word of salvation, the word of the gospel, the word of the cross, the word of life and truth. In a world of religious myths all over, Christians proclaim the truth about the way and the only way that people can be reconciled to God and thereby escape hell and enjoy heaven forever. So you've been given the logos of reconciliation, the absolute truth. You don't have to wonder. I wonder if this is true compared to everything else. Yes, this is the truth. There is nothing else. Besides this, so when we think about it, we've been entrusted with the richest, deepest truths about how to be reconciled to God. We've been given the message or the ministry or the logos of reconciliation. The application for us is when we've been forgiven and entrusted with the gospel, this should humble us beyond measure and should cause us to want to actively participate in the ministry of reconciliation by calling people that don't know Jesus to salvation. Who else is going to do it but the church? No one. So that's number two. Number three, the third truth is this. Our reconciliation is by the obedience of faith. It's by the obedience of faith. Now Paul is going to continue reconciliation. In that idea, we're ambassadors. So I'm going, to, I'm going to go through the verse, but I'm going to help us see why I say obedience of faith at the end. So first off, ambassadors. This, this is a, a spokesman. This is Christ's spokesman. Um, Ambassadors never act on their own authority, ever. They don't ever act on their own authority. They only act under the commission of the greater power and the authority that sent them. That is what an ambassador is. Whenever our our country or any country sends an ambassador to another country, they are only speaking on behalf of the leader. They're not allowed to say anything they want. They're only allowed to speak on behalf of the leader. And if they, the moment they stop doing that, they need to come home. That's, that's who we are as ambassadors. We are only sent and we only speak on behalf of God. We say what God says. Um, in this context, the ambassador meant a more experienced person who served as a representative of a king from another country. All believers are messengers or ambassadors representing the king of heaven with the gospel. We plead with the people who are being reconciled to God and that, because Jesus is their rightful king. And so... Um, further, you should know that the term ambassador uh, insinuates action. It, uh, it does, ambassador doesn't mean 
you go to another place and you chill in your house. I'm just here if anybody ever wants to come to me. Uh, I'm here, like talking for God if you just want to hear from God. The word ambassador insinuates action. So we're ambassadors and we're always called to action. And so the first century uh, ambassador was not, a, was not a glorious job by any means. And so Paul uh, intentionally chooses this word ambassador saying that when we go and set up an embassy, that's what, that's what the church is in a lot of means. We're an embassy. When we set up an embassy, it's difficult and it's costly. This is what Paul, uh, one commentator, Garland, says this. Paul does not consider being ambassador of Christ an onerous task, but an enormous privilege to become a part of what God's saving work enterprises to the world. He does not worry. Paul does not worry that he must pay his own way. He does not complain because he had been in prison so many times or suffered countless beatings or that he endured stonings and shipwrecks and deadly dangers to, the country, to other countries. Um, he did not travel first class but frequently would wind up hungry and thirsty and exposed to the cold. He did not endure these things for personal glory or reward, but because God had shown in his heart and gave him the light of the knowledge of the glory in the face of Christ, and he simply could not stay home and be silent. He committed himself to this ministry for the sake of the gospel. And so we are ambassadors of Christ. Now look what he says. This is it. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. And there it is. God making his appeal through us. Every time you plead the gospel, every time you share it and, and want someone to come to Christ, you are literally having God making his appeal through you. That's, that's unbelievable. An ambassador makes the case for the one who sent him. Sent him. Um, we proclaim, we appeal, we entreat, we urge, we make these appeals uh, through loving means, not harsh means, but through loving means, gentle winsome as possible um, because the living God is speaking through us. We think, how would Jesus say this? And that's the way I want to say it because it's literally Jesus saying it through me. And so we're making an appeal and it's God making his appeal through us. Paul Barnett says, this means that those, whom we repre- that those to whom we represent Jesus make their judgment about Jesus by what they observe in us. Since God makes his appeal through us, it is imperative that we live so as to bring credit to our master. It's super important the way we live. Now, you could just say, well, yeah, well, God's going to save him anyway, right? Right, reform guy? Okay. But why would you just say, well, I can do what I want? Like, we're, we're sons and daughters of the king. I want to represent Christ well. He's our king. So... We can see here that we're all called to this. And so you might say, okay, well, I didn't go to seminary. How am I qualified to do that? I thought that's what the pastors are supposed to do. No, Um, yeah, but not just the pastors, right? Everybody. Because in this, Paul is not saying that the ministry of reconciliation has been given to the leaders of the church, the pastors of the church. It's been given to everyone. So every single one of you, uh, whether you are a pastor or not, You are all called to do this, all of us. Um, This means that every church member has been given the message of reconciliation. Every church member acts on behalf of Christ and um, urges those who don't know people to come to know Christ. The ministry of reconciliation, this is Paul Barnett again, the ministry of reconciliation cannot be exercised in a detached and cold manner. 
So whenever we do it, the language Paul is using is deeply emotional and passionate. Through us, he declares, God appeals to men and women and Christ implores them. This means that the ministry can never be performed in a coldly take it or leave it attitude. So when you are speaking with people, you should feel the depth of what's going on. If they don't trust Christ, they are separated from God forever. And that, that destroys me. Think about how much you would love someone and that you would want them to come to know Christ. So um, why then, Fudd, if you said all that so far, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. When we go and we say, be reconciled to God, why are you saying our reconciliation is by the obedience of faith? Why did you put obedience of faith when, when it just says be reconciled to God? Here's why. Here's why. Simply put, here it is. No one, no one can be reconciled to God unless it's by faith. No one. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Note, now to the one who works, his wages are counted, uh, not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, and here it is, same word when I say faith, that's the same word as believe in the Greek. It's there's only one word. It's pistos is what it's pronounced. Um, faith or believe. The one who believes in him, in Christ, is, is, who justi- is justified. And now the, he justifies the ungodly and his faith is counted as righteousness. No one can be reconciled to God unless it's by faith. Philippians chapter 3, 9. And being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so the third uh, message of reconciliation is that it's through the obedience of faith. Our reconciliation is by faith and faith alone. What do you mean by faith? Because that's, I mean, that's just a hijacked word, right? I've actually heard people say that they have faith in faith. What? What does that nonsense mean? I don't even know what that means. Faith in faith. You can't have faith in faith. That doesn't make any sense. So what, what do we mean when we say faith or believe what is it that we have to believe? I made a little list. They're fun. Um, first, that Jesus um, is God, John 8, 20, 8, 24. Jesus is God. We have to believe that Jesus is God. And thereby being God, that he has always existed. He didn't become God. There's heresies all over the place for that. That he is God and that eternally passed, passed, To my left is a path, by the way. Eternally past and eternally future, he's God. Jesus is God. He didn't become God. Heresy, that he is God and always has been God. We also believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. He didn't just just die, but that he was resurrected. He was fully resurrected bodily and that he lived on earth for 40 days. Romans 4.24, Romans 10.9. In any other name and in no one else besides Jesus Christ. You have to believe that. John 14, 6, Acts 4, 12. No one gets to heaven except through Christ. That's it. There's no other way. It's not a big mountain, and there's lots of little trails that lead to the same thing. Nonsense. Pluralism is not true. Number four, that believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and that you must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Romans 10, 9. Number five, you have to believe that you are a sinner and in need of a Savior. 
James 4, 8 through 10, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Only God can do that, so we're asking him to do it. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and when you're saved, he will exalt you. These are the things that we say when we say you have to believe. You just don't, it's not a generic belief like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a theist. I believe that there's a God. No, that's not, it's not like the... Being a Christian is the opposite of atheist. I, I don't believe there's a God. Now I am a theist and I just believe there's a God. That's not what we mean by believe. We mean believing in the objective truths of the good news of Jesus Christ. That he is God. That he was raised from the dead. That there is no salvation in anything else besides him. And that because of that I confess with my mouth and believe in the heart that I was a sinner. That I confess my sin. I repent of my sin. And I put all of my hope in Christ's death for me. And I receive his righteousness. And he receives my punishment. And the great um, transaction happens. This is what we mean by faith. There's a lot to it, but it's, it's still a very simple message. So when we say faith, that's what we mean. And now we have been given the task to go to other people and we beg people to believe and have faith. We beg for them to be reconciled to God so that they can be delivered from the wrath of God as well. So that's the third one. Our reconciliation is by the obedience of faith. And so I want to conclude with this um, amazing verse 21. This is my conclusion. I think this is how Paul uh, decides to conclude this, one, conclude this little section here in verse 21. And uh, it, verse 4 kind of has like four little parts, and I just want to point them out to you. Um, I'm going to skip around in there so, so we can get it. So let's read the whole thing. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, that's Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the, uh, after he's been explaining the gospel from 11 all, to, all the way to 20, you know, he walked off the stage. Uh, he went back into the, to the dressing room. He's sitting there. He's having a Gatorade or whatever. And uh, the crowd's just yelling, gospel, gospel, gospel. And so he's like, all right, fine, I'll come out. Here's my gospel encore. And he gets verse 21, gospel encore for everybody. This, that's what verse 21, it's the, the band's coming back on stage to play your favorite song. This is it. Here's the gospel encore. And here's verse 21. That's what it is. I, that's, in my mind, it's the gospel encore. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The first little thing I want you to see is the benefactor in the gospel is God. He made, look for our sake, he made. God is the benefactor. He made him, it's all for God's glory. He's the one who does it all and it's all for his glory. God is the benefactor of the entire good news. We, we receive stuff, I'm getting to that, but he's the benefactor. The substitute is Jesus. He made, look at that, the next part is Jesus. He is the one that took our place. Jesus is the means by which we are saved. He made the benefactor as God. It's all for his glory. The substitute is Jesus, him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus is the means for this all to happen. The beneficiary, the benefactor is God. The beneficiary is us. Look at the first three words. For our sake. We're the recipients of his mercy. We are the recipients of his grace. The benefactor is God. The substitution is Jesus. The beneficiary is us. The benefit itself is that last little phrase. So that we might become the righteousness 
of God. That is the benefit itself. We are made right with God. Think about that for a second. You now, in Christ, have become the righteousness of God in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this amazing, amazing truth. Thank you for the holy of holies of 2 Corinthians that just leads us into the good news of the gospel and that for just two weeks, with really very little application besides knowing that we've been entrusted with this message, we just get to come and sit in this good news and just be in utter awe and amazement of Jesus and what he's done for us and that we are, our hearts are filled with joy. Thank you for this good news, not just for unbelievers to hear and be saved, but for believers to hear and, Lord, rejoice in the fact that we don't have to earn our salvation or even after we've come to salvation, keep our salvation through law-keeping, that it's still because of the gospel. And so, Lord, thank you so much for this. I pray, Lord, for those that don't know Christ that have heard this, that they would, uh, they would trust in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.